0: Welcome back to The Wrestling Room. Today is going to be uh, a journey, no question about it. We're going to dive into the Book of Acts today, but before we do, today's message is really putting a puzzle together. I want to show you where in history the Book of Acts fits. I want to answer the question, what in the world is going on? This week of study has been mind-blowing for me. I feel like I've been to seminary and I can't wait to share with you what I have learned. The scripture has expanded and grown and I am more amazed at the word of God after this week of study than I've ever been. I feel like I'm just a beginner, beginning to parse and put things together. So I'm going to pray and we're going to dive in and get ready. Grab a pen, grab some paper, take some notes. I'm going to actually post my... uh, email address on in the description under the video. If you want these notes, I will happily email them to you. There's a lot I'm going to share with you today. So get ready. If you grab hold of this, it will change literally the way you see all of scripture, the way you see the Old and the New Testaments, and you'll never be the same after this. I'm, I'm going to promise you that. So I'm a little bit Uh, shaking in my boots, getting ready to share this with you, I pray that God will give me wisdom. So Lord, we pray for wisdom to share concisely, clearly. And Lord, may those who listen grab hold of this incredible truth from your word, this incredible plan that you have put together, Lord. And um, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to dive in And set the stage with Isaiah 46, verses 9, 10, and 11b. There are four things I want to uh, use as underlying foundational principles to build on. And here's, here's the passage. I'll read it, then I'll share those things with you. It says this, God is speaking. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I've planned it, surely I will do it. Wow, that is a powerful declaration from God about himself. Let me unpack four things. Number one, we learn in this passage that God is exclusively and uniquely God. (laughs) This is kind of a no-brainer, but it's very important. There are no rivals to God. He is alone on the throne of deity. Nobody else rivals him. Nobody else joins him. The Bible is monotheistic from start to finish. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Not gods, no pantheon, it's just God. <laughs> Number two, he announces, this amazing God announces what will happen. He is a God who is characterized, who has characterized himself by revealing the future. By reveal, revealing the future to us, some uh, Bible scholars believe that up to one third of all of the content of Scripture is prophetic, is foretelling or foretelling, sharing what will happen in the future. It's unbelievable, truly, and it's one of the reasons why I have such a rock-solid belief and faith in the Scripture because it tells the future. Number three, God is supremely powerful. He says, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Whatever he prophesies, whatever he foretells will happen. Period. End of story. And number four, he is a planner. God is not knee jerk. He doesn't shoot from the hip and he's not reactive. He has a purpose. He has a plan and he will bring it to pass. Now, what that means is this. History is not just a random flow of events. History is literally his story. It might sound corny, but get it, get it in your head. History is his story, period. It is a brilliantly orchestrated series of events, all of which are purposeful. They build one upon the other, like a house being built from the foundation up in perfect timing, perfect order. And so today I want to take you on a journey using 10 biblical pairs, two things paired with one another. They're either conflicting with one another or they're complementing one another. And these 10 pairs largely make up his story or history. Now these 10 pairs are interspersed between four movements of history. In the first 12 chapters of Genesis, we literally have all of the four movements of history defined and described. And so I'm going to walk you through those, interspersing 10 duos, 10 pairs that either conflict with one another or complement one another, all of which tell the story of history and ultimately answer the question, why is the book of Acts so important? Why is it vital to study it right now? Where does it sit in history? So that's where we're going. So grab hold here. So movement number one, Genesis chapters one and two is formation. Formation, the creation of paradise. The creation of paradise. And we have pair number one, and that is two created beings. Two created beings. Now, before we talk about these two created beings, I want to emphasize a principle that is vital that you understand if you're going to understand biblical history and all of history in general. And that is that God works through delegated authority. God is the source of all authority, but he has chosen to delegate his authority to certain peoples or groups on behalf of himself. They represent him. They work out from him at his bidding. Now, the first, then, created being who God gave delegated authority to were the angels. Now, the angels are a hierarchy. They are... they operate with different levels of responsibility and spheres of service. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says of the angels that they are ministering spirits sent out by God. So again, it's delegated authority to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So the angels work for God on behalf of us who know Jesus, those who will inherit salvation. And all throughout Scripture, we see God interacting with and working through angels Many times in relation to judgment, there'll be much angelic activity in the end times and a lot of times in the context of spiritual warfare. Their leader from the beginning, their prime minister or lieutenant, if you want to call him that, was Lucifer, the superior angel in every way, wisdom, beauty and power. Lucifer, God's crowning creation, was the leader of the angels. But the second delegated group that God created was to us, the human beings, where man was the leader, woman was his equal, partner, and assistant, and to mankind, to Adam in Genesis 1:28, God gave he gifted the title deed of the earth. Now, this is vital that we get this. I'll come back to this a little later, but it's vital vital that we understand this. God created the earth, Genesis chapter one and chapter two, but in 128, God titles, he gives the title deed of the earth to Adam. The Bible teaches that this was Adam's inheritance from his father, so to speak. So God delegates then his authority to Adam to populate the earth, to domesticate the earth, to lead the earth, and to care for the earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and then take care of it. Rule over it. Care for it. So he delegates authority. So that's movement number one, the creation of paradise, formation. But movement number two is rebellion. Genesis chapter three, the corruption of paradise. The corruption of paradise, pair number two. Two disloyal defectors happens to be the same as pair number one. Defector number one, Lucifer and his angels, his, which became demons. We don't know. The Bible doesn't indicate how long Lucifer loyally served God. But at some point, his gaze left the beauty of God and it rested on his own beauty. At that point, his most valuable possession became his mirror and his most obsessive or addictive obsession became his own reflection. And Lucifer turned on God. But not only did he turn, he took with him one-third of all the angels. We know that from Revelation chapter 12. He pulled a heavenly coup, if you will, and took with him a third of the angels. At that point, his name was changed, not so much to another name, but to a title. Shatan, or Satan, means adversary, means one who opposes. And so Lucifer, or star, or son of the morning, became Satan, Satan, the adversary, the one who opposes God. Before we move from this point, I want to just point out this, though. Satan has been characterized in movies uh, and and media and books and comic books, etc. as this this red uh, monster with horns, a pitchfork, a, a forked tail, and that it couldn't be further from the truth. Oh, he loves you to think that. But often Satan comes to us as a gentleman in a tux and a top hat. He comes to us as what the Bible says, an angel of light. Now get this, his first utterance, the first thing we hear Satan saying, at the end of that first statement he says this, I will be like the Most High. And in that statement we see what his MO is. He is a master master counterfeit. He takes what God has created that is good and he twists it and counterfeits it and then sells it off as something that God has given for our good. He is a trafficker in fool's gold. Satan is a deceiver. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a murderer and he is a destroyer. He is, as the scripture says, an angel of light. He's an imitator, a decoy, a duck call, luring people to their own slaughter. That is defector number one. Defector number two, though, is Adam and Eve. Humans, those made in God's image. By the way, angels were not made in God's image. They were creations of God, but God did not breathe his nature into the angels. He did that exclusively with human beings but they were defector number two. You know they fell for the deceiver's lies. Satan commandeered the body of the serpent, came to Eve, deceived her. Adam rebelled with his eyes wide open, and history changed forever, forever. It says in Romans 5.12 that for by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and hooked to sin, as it were a trailer in back of the U-Haul of sin was death. It says, death came by sin. So death spread to all men for all have sinned. The virus of sin passed the disease of death. And all of us are carriers. All of us are born into this world as sinners, With the sentence of death on our heads. Every little baby conceived. There is no innocent child. Every child is born with the virus of sin and the the sickness of death. The doom of death. That is the reality on this planet. So we move from creation to rebellion to the third movement. That is disintegration. The collapse of paradise, the collapse of paradise. And that's that brings us to pair number three. Two conflicting or two clashing kingdoms. In Genesis chapter three, we see this beginning to unfold. Adam and Eve have been caught red-handed, trying to sew together fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And God, for the first time, is forced to convene the courtroom of heaven to try his own children, his own humans that he breathed his own life into, and to administer consequences for their actions. And so here we have the serpent, Adam and Eve, gathered before God. God is getting ready to address and pronounce their sentence, and he starts with the devil to begin with. And here's what he says to, to the devil, to Satan who stands before God silently. This is a powerful scene when you really put yourself there. He's not back-talking. He's not not speaking a word to his creator. He knows his place. (laughs) He is silent before the God who created him. God and Satan, brothers and sisters, are not equals. (laughs) Satan understands that with one breath, God could disintegrate him in an instant. Wow. Wow. So he stands before God in silence, and God declares this. I, God, will put enmity, which means hatred, hostility, or conflict between you and then the woman. who Eve is standing next, somewhere near him. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed, those who you will rule over, and her seed. And this declaration, this pronouncement, is the pronouncement of two kingdoms that would clash, that would be in conflict with one another from that point onward. The kingdom of darkness, led by Satan, and the kingdom of light, represented by the woman, and particularly her seed, an ancestor that would come from her. Stay tuned. In Genesis then, from there on, 6 through 11... You have the picture of these clashing kingdoms, but you have also a graphic testimony, a graphic witness of how deeply and profoundly the seed of rebellion lodges in the heart of humankind. That evil has saturated our beings thoroughly. (laughs) In the story of the flood, God saw the earth, and he says this, that every intent of the thoughts of the hearts of man was only evil continually he said the earth was filled with violence it was corrupt and so what does god do he does the first ultimate global reset <laughs> he does a massive pruning of the tree of humanity from from masses and millions potentially of humans down to 8 literally down to the stump <laughs> Humanity is reduced to eight people, and we go through the flood, but at the at the back end of the flood, we come out of it. The problem is that all eight took onto the ark the virus of sin. So the first scene we see after the flood is drunk, naked Father Noah. Drunk and naked. The virus of sin had been passed on to the next group of people. Then we move A hundred years into the future, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And this is a crazy story because what you have now is not a global reset. You have a global scramble, a global scramble. This is where God looks down and he sees this global commune being formed. Literally, it's a global commune. They say we do not want to spread out as God commanded. We want to group together we want to put our heads together. We're going to build this huge building, and from this massive structure, we are going to worship the stars. And this is likely the beginning of astrology. So instead of a whole society worshiping God, they're worshiping the stars. Instead of a whole society seeking God for guidance, they're seeking the planets for guidance. And so the Lord scrambles their language. He disseminates the people throughout the planet and and puts a stop to this global commune that is in opposition to him. And we learn two things from this this movement, this disintegrative movement of society. One is this. The prunings, the, the resets and the scramblings, they don't eradicate sin. They only slow down the spread of sin. The disease just continues. But the second thing we again see how pervasive man's heart is to run away from God, not run to God. And thirdly, I guess if you want to uh, there's a third conclusion, and that is this. Sin erodes society radically like 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 a a, a an acid, a battery acid. It just the scripture says it this way: righteousness exalts or lifts up a nation, but sin is a scourge. It's a whip. It is it beats down people. So you have two clashing kingdoms, but a fourth pair you have two dramatic. Prophecies. This is the latter half of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is what we call the proto-evangelium, the first hint of good news. Evangelium, good news. <laughs> the first hint of good news. I call this the mother tree of all prophecy. This is the mother prophecy, the mother promise. This is the first prophecy in the Bible pointing to hope. There is a way out of this disintegration. There is a way out of this rebellion. There is a way out of this slavery and bondage to Satan. And we see it here. He says, I will put enmity, God does. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and between the woman, between your seed, those who follow you, and her seed, the people of faith. But then he gets very specific. God says, and he will crush your head. Now, who is he? Where? Do, who is this? He is referring to an ancestor, someone who would come down the line out of Eve's body. One of her offspring, whether it be a child, grandchild, or many generations to come. Someone from her line would crush the head of Satan, but that offspring would have his heel struck. Using the language of a serpent, a snake, that heel of the offspring would be struck and the venom from that snake would be released. But there would be a head wound, a crushing head wound, and a bruising heel wound. Two major prophecies. Satan's head would be crushed, but the heel of the the seed, the foretold offspring, would be bruised. Keep that in mind. Two dramatic prophecies. They foreshadow literally all that is to come. And they lead us to pair number five. And that is two divine missions. One mission for each of the defectors. One mission that addresses Satan and his his leadership of the planet. One mission that addresses Adam and Eve and their loss of innocence and their loss of their, their purity that God created them in. If that makes sense. So what is one what is what I call the kingdom mission. This is God reclaiming his kingdom from the rebel force of demons led by the former prime minister, Lucifer. 1 John 5.19 says this, the whole world lies under the control of, of the evil one, and legally that is true, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So God is going to, to literally reclaim the kingdom, mission number one, but number two He is, is the liberation mission, where God will liberate and reclaim his people, not just the kingdom, not just leadership of the kingdom, but the people of the kingdom, that's us, <laughs> Who, who he has made in his image, who have fallen into slavery under Lucifer, under Satan's sadistic, dictatorial, murderous leadership. And as 2 Timothy 2.26 says, those who are held captive by him to do his will. Two missions, two missions. One, a kingdom mission. A second, a mission to liberate the people. These two missions then define, from Genesis 3.15 onwards, the whole of the Bible. The whole of the Bible is the outworking of these two missions. Every word, every page, every concept is part of the fulfillment of these two missions. It's the story of the Bible. And so this becomes the story of God's movement through all of history and brings us to movement number four, and that is reclamation. The recovery of paradise. So we have the creation of paradise, the corruption of paradise, the collapse of paradise. Now we have the recovery of paradise, the reclamation movement. And that brings us to pair number six. That is two symbolic animals. Wow, two symbolic animals. Both of the missions, the kingdom mission and the liberation mission, are represented by a symbolic animal each illustrating the essential nature and the goal of the mission. Now, you probably already have these in your mind, but I'm going to share them with you. Number one is the lion. The lion. Mentioned first in Genesis 49. The lion was the symbol of the tribe of Judah, the fourth tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where we get our phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Judah was the tribe from which the kings came. All the kings were to come from the tribe of Judah. So the lion, symbolic of kingship, symbolic of rulership, this lion was symbolic of reclaiming the kingdom, a picture of Operation Kingdom, <laughs> reclaiming the kingdom. The second animal was the lamb, illustrating innocence, purity, humility, and weakness. First time we see the lamb is very profound. In Exodus chapter 12, there have been nine brutal and devastating plagues that God has brought against Pharaoh and Egypt because God has declared through Moses, you let my people go. They had been in bondage, brutal bondage to Pharaoh for 400 years. He'd made their lives bitter and God was declaring, you let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no way. Probably in language much more crude than that. And God says, I will not be mocked. You will do what I say. He says to uh, to Moses, there will be a tenth plague. He will let let you go after this tenth plague. There will be an angel of death that sweeps through the land. It will take the life of every firstborn son and every firstborn animal of every home in Israel. Now you tell your people... That they can escape this devastation if they will take a blameless, innocent, perfect lamb, kill it, and then paint its blood on the doorposts and the lintel of the door of their homes. Then they must go into their homes, close the door, and when the angel of death comes, when it sees the blood of the innocent, blameless, pure lamb painted on the doorposts, it will go right by, it will pass Over. And that lamb was symbolic of the second mission, to liberate people from their sin. It would be the blood of a perfect lamb, of a sacrifice, of a substitute that would bring cleansing and forgiveness and liberation. The lion, the lamb, Operation Lion, Operation Lamb, which brings us to pair number seven. Two game-changing promises. Now, I'm going to linger here for a moment. Put on your thinking cap. This one is huge. Two game-changing promises. I'm going to go back to the Garden of Eden, back to where God gave the title deed of the earth to Adam. He gave it legally to Adam. It was a legal document that gave him legal ownership of the earth. But when Adam sinned, he lost his his power because he lost his innocence. That right to ownership was relinquished to Satan. That title deed transferred legally to Satan. Many passages throughout Scripture substantiate this, and I'll share a few of them in a moment. Friends, sin does two things to us every time. Number one, it causes us to lose our inheritance. And number two, it causes us to lose our freedom. It causes us to become a slave of Satan, a slave of sin. Sin is a bad deal no matter how you slice it. The scripture says there is pleasure in it for a season, but brothers and sisters, trust me, trust the word of God, sin causes you to lose your inheritance, lose your blessing, and to lose your freedom. And that's exactly what happened to Adam. When he handed that title deed to Satan, Satan took legal ownership of this planet. That's why the scripture says and calls him the God of this world and says that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. It is also why when Jesus and Satan went toe-to-toe, and Satan was tempting Jesus. In temptation number two, he took him up into a high place, and he showed him, it says, in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. Don't know how that happened, but he did. And then he says these words to Jesus. He says, I will give you all this domain and its glory. Why? For it has been handed over to me. By whom? By Adam. Adam had taken that inheritance that God gave him, handed it to Satan when he sinned. He lost his blessing. And he came underneath the leadership of Satan. So Satan can say to Jesus, legally, it has been handed to me. I own this place. And I give it to whomever I wish. That is a scary thought. I give it to whomever I wish. Think and ponder on that one. Then he says to Jesus, Therefore, if you will worship me, It shall be yours. Jesus could not argue with that point. But he says, it is written, you shall not worship anybody but God alone. So Jesus escaped and beautifully won that victory. But Satan had truthfully spoken when he said, I own this. I have the right to give it to you. Now here is a... A powerful truth that we learn in Leviticus chapter 25. And that is this. All title deeds to land have terms of redemption. They have a buyback clause, so to speak. Which means that when a family loses their property for whatever reason, they have seven years to buy back that property. Property was essential to the survival of families. If a man had to give up his land in the culture, he would have seven years to be able to scrape the money together and buy it back because it was so vital to his family's survival. If he could not afford to buy it back, there was another clause and that was that a kinsman, a relative, somebody of his own blood could buy it back for him. Wow, really? could buy it back for him. Now, in the case of the title deed of the earth, the price to buy it back was perfection. When Adam lost his innocence, his perfection, he lost the title deed to the earth. He had to get that perfection back to be able to buy it back. Impossible. That that ship already had sailed. Whoever was to buy back the title deed to the earth had to be perfect, a perfect life with perfect blood. Wow. So in 2000 BC, God comes to a man named Abraham and he gives him a promise. And he says this, from your family is going to come an ancestor, a seed. And through that seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who is he talking about? Well, first of all, what was this blessing that he was talking about? The blessing is talked about in the book of Acts and Peter is preaching. We're going to get to this in, in some weeks, but he's preaching to people and they're asking what do we need to do? And Peter is saying, there is someone who is coming. God has raised up for you. A, a He says this, I've got it right. He says for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. What would be the blessing guys? Those of you who have spent time in church, those of you who have had a lot of Bible and religion, this might not hit you very hard initially, but if you have been bogged in sin, if you understand the grip of sin and the horrendous nature of sin, the way it disintegrates our lives and brings us into slavery, the thought of being free from the bondage of sin is mind-bogglingly liberating. And so what is the blessing that this seed of Abraham would bring? Liberation from the grip of sin, freedom, purity. That is the blessing that this seed would bring. That is the first operation of God to liberate his people. That is what the lamb symbolizes. But then he goes on. And 1,000 years later, after God has talked to Abraham, 1,000 years later, he comes to David, King David, who is from the tribe of Judah, who is reigning as king in Israel. And he says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we call this the Davidic covenant. When he spoke to Abraham, we call that the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Davidic covenant, God comes to David and he says this, you and your house... He says, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. What is he saying? Let me break it down. There's so much more to this, but for time, I'm going to just say this. He's saying to David, David, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to honor your family by Promising you that somebody in your lineage, somebody down the way from you, will sit on your throne. You will have an ancestor who will not only sit on your throne for 30 to 40 years, but he will occupy your throne forever. He will rule over Israel forever. He will be an everlasting king. Mind-blowing to David. But Zechariah chapter 14 expands it and says not only will he rule over Israel... His kingship, his kingdom will be over all of the earth, over all of the earth. Any idea who we're talking about? Abraham, you'll have a seed. He'll liberate the people from their sins. David, you'll have a seed. He will reclaim the kingdom and he will occupy the throne forever. Not of just Israel, of the whole earth. These are the two parallel prophecies, or I wouldn't say parallel, one intersects the other, and they carry forward into history God's story, God's story. So we come then to two symbolic sons. What would this look like? How would this happen? Abraham has a son named Isaac, and in Genesis 22, God instructs him to take his son, his only beloved son, the son whom he loves, to Mount Moriah and to offer him, instead of a lamb, offer his son as the sacrifice. And Abraham obeys God. Interestingly enough, Mount Moriah, we know it in the New Testament as Golgotha or Mount Calvary. God asked Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, to a place that he would show him. It ends up being Mount Moriah, the same place that we call Golgotha or Mount Calgary, Calvary. He would take him and begin to offer him, bind him, place him on the altar. And as he was ready, just, just preparing to plunge the knife, the angel of the Lord would say no more and would provide a ram, you know the story, caught in the thicket to be the substitute of for that young man, foreshadowing how the mission of liberation would play out. (laughs) David had a son named Solomon, and we know as we study the kingdom of Solomon that it was the only time in the history of Israel where there was peace, complete and total peace, for a very lengthy period of time. Prosperity, Peace. Nations came to Israel. Nations came to be taught by Solomon. Nations came to observe the beauty and all the things that Solomon had created. It was a destination resort for those in awe of what God had done. A picture of a coming kingdom ruled by an everlasting king. So there were two symbolic sons, and now it gets really good because in Matthew chapter one, verse one, we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the New Testament is inaugurated, is introduced with this statement, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And all of a sudden, everything clicks. Everything clicks. For those of you who don't understand how the old and the new testament relate to one another, Matthew chapter one, verse one, brings it all together like two boxcars being being connected together. Click. Someone has said that the Old Testament, in the Old Old Testament, Jesus is concealed. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed. We realize that all these foreshadows, all the promise of Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed to crush the head of the serpent, whose heel would be bruised. There would be a lion. There would be a lamb. There would be a sacrifice. There would be an enduring throne. There would be a reclamation of a kingdom. All of it came together, dovetailed, beautifully, harmonized, began to be realized in the person of Jesus. Jesus. Two symbolic sons. Two, then, pair number nine, two comings of Jesus. Two comings of Jesus. When Jesus started his earthly ministry... It was John the Baptist who proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He acknowledged that this man was here to fulfill the mission of liberation. He was the fulfillment of all the pictures of the Lamb in the Old Testament. The Lamb was here. The Lamb of God. The Lamb sent by God. God's perfect Lamb. Pointing to Jesus. Jesus. The first coming of Jesus fulfilled the liberation plan, the the redemption plan, reclaiming the people of God. In the story of Isaac, we see a partial picture of what that would look like, but we know that Jesus, on the cross, there was no ram to save him. Jesus was the ram. (laughs) He was the ram. He was the substitute, and God the Father had to plunge the knife. He didn't hold his hand back, and all the sin of the world was transferred into the Lord Jesus when he hung on that cross, past, present, future, my sin, your sin, into the body. It says he bore in his body all the sin of the world. He became a sin sponge, absorbing every vile thing ever known to man, and he bore it for three hours. So much so that it blew his heart. He literally had a heart attack on the cross. And when, just before he died, he declared, it is finished. Te telestai. It literally means the price has been paid in full to restore humanity and the price that was necessary for reclaiming the title deed of the earth. Paid in full. It is finished. But there will be a second coming of Jesus. A second coming of Jesus. And we see that predicted and pictured in Revelation chapter 19. When he comes with the heavenly army riding on a white horse. And it says on his thigh will be tattooed king of kings and lord of lords. King over all kings. Lord over all lords. And he will reclaim the kingdom at that time. That's when finally Satan's head will be crushed once and for all. In Revelation 21 verses one through six, Jesus declares again in verse one, I believe it is, it is finished or it is done. This is a different word that he uttered, than he uttered, same statement, different word than he uttered on the cross. It literally means it is complete. It has been reclaimed. It is refurbished. It has come full circle back to the place that I created, back to the innocence of Eden, back to the place where we walk together, we talk together, we live together, back to perfect harmony, perfect fellowship. It is done. First coming, it is finished, paid in full. Second coming, it is done, it is finished. Full circle. Full circle. Now I want to conclude with the concept of the gap. The gap. There is a gap between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. What happens? What transpires in that gap? That is the book of Acts. That is the book of Acts, and we are living right now in the gap, in the gap. Acts, the book of Acts ends at chapter 28, but we are living in the book of Acts, if you want to call it chapter 29. (laughs) That is us. We are living in some of the greatest time when the Holy Spirit is acting and moving and bringing people to himself and moving history towards the second coming of Jesus. We are living in the gap, brothers and sisters, and that brings us to the last pair, and that is two distinct crowds. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, you see 120 Jewish believers gathered in a room. They're praying, they're wondering, they're waiting for the gift that the Father would send, that Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit. And of course that comes, but we have 120 Jewish believers. Fast forward to Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6, and you see a great multitude gathered before and around the throne. I mean, it is a throng massive. Let me read to you how it's described. It says, John says this, the writer of Revelation says this, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and as the sound of a mighty Peal of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He reigns. There is a massive people around the throne, so great that as they sing and they worship Jesus, it sounds like thunder clapping. It sounds like the ocean crashing up against the cliffs. The sound is massive. And in chapter 5 of Revelation, we find that that group is made up of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, It is not just 120 Jewish people. It is people from every people group on the planet. All all of the the languages that God scrambled back at the Tower of Babel, there are representatives from every single group around the throne praising and worshiping Jesus who has reclaimed the kingdom. He's liberated his people. He's reclaimed his, his, his kingdom. It is done. Full circle. That's the story. That is the story. What in the world is going on? What is God doing? That's what he's doing. That is what he's doing. Our job right now is to fill the space around the throne of God with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's our job. That's what we are to be doing. And I've heard a lot in these last few months of people asking, you know, when is the mark of the beast coming? What is the mark of the beast? Listen, don't worry about the mark of the beast. The question we should be asking is, how can we get the message of this king, this lion, this lamb, to as many people as possible in as fast a time as possible so Jesus can come back? Because his word says, as soon as the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom touches every single nation, then the end will come. Don't worry about the mark of the beast. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about Jesus. That's what God is doing. That is the movement that we're involved in. Reclaiming people. Reclaiming people. Recovering what what, what has been lost. I pray for you. That you truly will allow this to penetrate your heart. Let your mind be renewed with this. And then move. Move with with the movement of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, awesome, awesome, awesome. We praise you for what you're doing. We praise you for your grand plan. We praise you, Lord, for your brilliance, your genius, your power, um, your faithfulness. And we align ourselves with you. And Lord, I pray as we travel through the book of Acts, we will be transformed, oh God. That we will be filled with a boldness and power and, and zeal for your plan. That your love and your grace will literally explode out of us like a volcano. Jesus, we're, we're, we're trusting you with this journey. We praise you. Thank you for this truth. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Thank you for sticking with me through this message. A lot of stuff, but it is powerful. Life-changing. I hope... As you meditate, it will truly excite you to the fact that God is working. So have a great week. I'll see you next week. And I can't wait to jump into the actual book of Acts with you. We'll see you next week. God bless you.